All right, let's read together. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue. They is Paul and Barnabas. They entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with, the, with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things To a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the apostles gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went, out, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, and they had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had heard, when they had appointed elders from them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Verse 24. When they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, and they went down to Italia, and, they, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. It's the word of the Lord. When I first read this text, I'm, I'm struck by the courage of, of Paul and his perseverance. And growing up, I always loved uh, military, uh, I, at first it was like military facts. Like I love to read about like 
jets and planes and tanks and, you know, cool things that little boys like, like to read about and learn about and looking up pictures and, and getting magazines about that stuff. And as I've, I've gotten older, I've enjoyed uh, war history more and more. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a particular war. I, I, I just love military history in general. And, I've, and I'm coming to love it more and more for the stories that it provides to us. And one of my favorites of late is, is actually a, a, a more modern story. It, it comes from the war in Afghanistan in, in 2002. There was a guy named John Chapman, and he was um, a master technician in the Air Force. So he was an airman, uh, but he didn't fly planes. So that's what you're thinking. He's in the Air Force. Maybe he flew planes. He didn't. He was in the Air Force, but he was what they called a combat controller. Now, a combat controller's job was to deploy alongside elite fighting units to fight with them on the ground. He, he himself was a highly, trained, um, a highly trained warrior, John Chapman. They would deploy with guys like the SEALs or like with the Army's Delta Force while they were doing these, these uh, high-intensity raids and missions uh, deep into enemy territory. And John, and John Chapman's job was to coordinate air support for the guys on the ground while he's fighting with them. So he has kind of double duty. Now, John, the mission that he was on in March of 2002 as a part of Operation Anaconda was, was fairly simple, um, but it was complicated when one of, their, one of the SEALs that was with him in his helicopter fell out of the helicopter as they were avoiding a rocket-propelled grenade and landed on a mountaintop filled with enemy fighters. You can imagine that's a pretty stressful situation that one of your guys falls out. They have to circle back and come and land. The enemy already knows you're there. You've got a guy on the ground. John Chapman and his team of, of SEALs, they run out of this helicopter under heavy fire. It's winter in Afghanistan on a mountaintop, so he's in hip-deep snow. He pours out of this helicopter to heavy gunfire from, from a bunker up the hill about 50 yards. Now, John realizes he has a decision to make. The only way that they're going to survive here, some of his guys have already been hit, they're all hunkered down, is if someone goes and takes that bunker. He has to stop these guys from shooting at him. And so in hip-deep snow, he runs uphill into enemy fire, firing at the enemy until he's muzzle-to-muzzle with the two guys in this bunker, and he takes it from them. He kills them. And as he gets there, these guys are realizing the the shots have, have stopped in this bunker, but they've picked up in the two other bunkers on the other side of the hill that they didn't know were there. And so John, rather than hunkering down, he steps out and he begins to engage fighters from both of those bunkers. And it's at that point that he's wounded in his stomach twice and he's incapacitated. The Navy SEAL team behind him catches up. They exchange fire with the bunkers. They themselves are injured with rocket-propelled grenades. And they retreat down the hill and they pass the body of Neil Roberts, who was the one that fell out of the chopper and is dead. And they pass John Chapman. And because he's incapacitated and bleeding from his abdomen, they assume he's dead as well. The, the SEAL chief, the commander that's with him, takes his troops down the hill and they pop a smoke grenade and they wait for a, an, an exfil helicopter to come and get them and drop off more troops. Now, not long after they begin to call in airstrikes on the top of the mountain, John Chapman wakes up. He realizes he's not dead. He's alone on the top of a mountain, separated from his team by hundreds of yards and more than, more than two dozen enemy fighters, and he makes a decision to continue fighting. So for almost an hour, John Chapman exchanges fire and is fighting off Taliban fighters from all sides. At some points, he's fighting hand-to-hand with these guys for his life. And at the end of that hour, the second helicopter is coming up the hill, and he can hear it. And to John, that's probably a really good sound, knowing there's more guys coming, right? They can come and get me. But the enemy hears the helicopter, too, and they begin to press. And he realizes that he's the only thing between them 
and that helicopter and them shooting it down with a, with a, with a rocket-propelled grenade. And so rather than waiting for the helicopter to land and running down the hill to be rescued, John makes, makes a decision. He makes the decision to step out of this bunker into enemy fire, to exchange fire for several minutes, lobbing back the enemy's grenades at them as they land at his feet for, for several minutes until this helicopter can land and all of the SEALs and rangers that are on that helicopter can exit safely. And then John is killed. He's shot through the heart and he dies. Now, John Chapman's story is, is miraculous and for his efforts, he was just recently awarded posthumously the Congressional Medal of Honor, which I think was due him probably for the first charge up the hill, not to mention the second one. That, that incident is also the first Medal of Honor incident in military history to be recorded through drone footage, so you can actually watch that happen on YouTube. Guys, that story is striking to us because it's brave, it's courageous, it gets our blood pumping, right? And we start to think to ourselves, like, man, how could he do that? And then we start thinking, at least maybe, maybe as a man, I'm like, could I do, could I do that? Like, would I, would I make the same decision that he did to step out when, when, when I could run to safety or could step out into the line of fire for my friends, would I be willing to do that? And I love these stories, and, and in the context of what we're talking about today, this is very conspicuous gallantry, right? It's very obvious courage that anyone, anywhere could hear that story and think, John Chapman is a brave man. He was a brave man. But that gets me thinking that, that the types of courage that we see in our scripture that we're going to read about today... And what we saw, what we hear about John Chapman doing, are, they're very different. John Chapman's courage is, is uh, very conspicuous, it's very obvious. But there's other kinds of, of courage, there's other kinds of, of bravery that are, that are less obvious. Now, we, it's not that we wouldn't give them honor when we heard about them, we just don't hear about them much, or we don't think about them much. I think about the bravery and the courage of parents who have to stay up late with, with a newborn child who has special needs and all of the stress and worry that, that entails. I think of a family member, maybe, maybe a child, maybe, maybe a, a son who has, who has a career and he puts his career on hold to, to care for his aging parents because they've cared so well for him. That's brave, that's courageous, that's countercultural. I think of, of moms who do the same thing. They have, they have a career and they're willing to sacrifice moving forward in a field that they love to have children because they value that. Those are courageous things that, that we hear about, but we may not know people that do that. Maybe, maybe you're one of them, but that's courageous, and I want you to hear that. It's just less obvious, right? They don't hand out Congressional Medal of Honors for things like that. And then there's a third category of courage, which is what we see in our text today. It's what we see Paul and Barnabas displaying for us today, and it's Christian courage. And the thing about Christian courage is that it's neither very conspicuous nor very valued by the world because of, clearly, for what it stands for, right? That, that for a Christian to be courageous is to both stand for something that the world is against, but also to do so without much credit or people knowing about it. Fortunately, we have the record of Paul and Barnabas here that we can, that we can marvel at and we can aspire to. But I think of all the thousands, possibly millions of souls throughout church history that have been just as brave as Paul and Barnabas that we don't know about, but they will be rewarded by their Heavenly Father. That's the third type of Christian courage. So let's dive into our text today. We're going to break this down into three sections. We're going to read about Paul and Barnabas in Iconium. We're going to see their, their boldness there. Uh, we're going to read about Paul and Barnabas in Lystra and the crazy things that happened there. Uh, and then we're going to read about... Uh, Paul's uh, almost death 
and then return the return journey back through all the cities he's visited on this missionary trip as he makes his way back to Antioch. And we're going to break this down in, in several ways, and I think we have some great application for us this morning. But let me, let me read some verses, and, 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 and we'll, we'll dive in. 14 verse 1 says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now, Paul and Barnabas, is who this is centered on, they would enter the synagogue. It's just a good place to preach. Like People would be hanging around, right? Especially if they were there on a Sabbath day. So, that, so they targeted the, the synagogues a lot. That's why they would end up there. But I love what this says here. It says that, that they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And so that got me thinking, what does that mean he spoke in such a way? So it's like, well, maybe Paul's just a really great orator. He's a great rhetorician, and he, and he stands up, and he's got all the hand movements, you know, and he's got the, he pounds the fists, and, you know, he's just really good. And, like, he just really stirs people up, and he's like, yeah, yeah, well, I don't know what Paul's talking about, but I like it. But that's, that's counter, countercultural. It's counter, it's counter to Paul's character, in fact, because he displays for us, and in First and Second Corinthians specifically, he talks about how he presented the gospel to the Corinthians. It was with meekness. It was not in a, in a demonstration of the power of his flesh, but a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. So we know Paul wasn't up there, you know, waving his fists and, 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 and pounding the pulpit and, and, and being theatrical. It wasn't that. So what does it mean? Spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Well, I started thinking about our context today. Maybe, maybe Paul, he could have gotten up there, and he could have made a, a whole bunch of hogwash promises, right? Like, listen... Come and follow Jesus, and, and things are going to get really good for you, okay? Like, your, your financial troubles, pfft, say goodbye to those things, right? Your life, your life is going to be on an, on, a, on an upward trajectory forever if you follow Jesus. Jesus is great. He's going to come, and he's going to solve all your family problems. He's going to solve all your business problems. Like, you, if you follow Jesus, God's going to reward you richly. Prosperity gospel. We know that's not true. That's not Paul's way. What does Paul say? He says, I count all things as rubbish except for knowing Christ, right? To live is Christ and to die is gain. That doesn't sound like a thing. A guy who says that is not teaching the prosperity gospel. So what does it mean that they spoke in such a way? I think it means that, uh, that Paul preached the gospel boldly. And I was trying to imagine the words that Paul would have used. And it's actually, we're about to get to some words that I think would be really similar to what Paul used. So if you want to flip over with me, Maybe it's a page, maybe it's two in your Bible. But we're going to go to uh, Acts 17, where Paul addresses the Areopagus. Because I think this may have been something similar, because you know, Paul's in this Greek culture, and, and, and there's lots of different folks around. This is maybe something close to what, what Paul had, had said there. In, in chapter 17, verse 24, Paul says this. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Skip down to 29. He says, Being God's offspring then, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or like some sort of idol. 
an image formed by the art of, and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, by Jesus. And, this, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. I imagine that's something like what Paul said that day. A bold proclamation of the gospel that doesn't mince words, that doesn't make any false promises. He's just saying, listen, I'm not promising you anything. I'm not promising anything in your day-to-day life will change. I'm just saying, if you want to be saved, you've got to come to Jesus. Now, he spoke that in such a way that many believed. All right, and so we, but then we see what we see in verse 2, what happens? It says, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Immediate success, immediate opposition. That's usually how that works. How many of you have experienced that in life? Immediate success, immediate opposition. And Satan, the, the enemy, has a vested interest here because this is the gospel going out not just to Jews but to the Gentiles, to the nations. He's got to be getting, the devil's got to be getting a little nervous, right? Like everyone's, they're kind of encroaching on his kingdom now. Unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So I want us to note here, as we read verse 3, the immediate opposition that comes because of the immediate success. What is Paul and Barnabas' response to the immediate and heavy opposition by slander? Who knows what they're saying about these guys? Let's read verse 3. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to, to be done by their hands. Paul and Barnabas' response to persecution, to uh, opposition, is what? It's not really going really well here, Barnabas, so I'm thinking we should just like, head to the next town. Like, this is, this is you know, it's, it's fine. Like, it was good. Like, some people believe, but like, let's, let's, let's ditch out of here. You know, like, I don't know. I don't really want to ruffle too many feathers. No, that's not what they did at all. So they, they remained for a long time time. In the face of opposition, Paul and Barnabas remain for a long time. I want you to hear that word, church, because this is something that is so desperately missing in our culture today, this idea of remaining even though something isn't going the way that maybe we think it should be. There's a perseverance aspect that we see Paul demonstrating here for us by the power of the Holy Spirit that seems to be missing from us, specifically my generation. I'm indicting myself as much here as anybody, that when things are uncomfortable, they must not be good, or that when, when things aren't working out kind of the way that I thought they would, well, maybe the Lord wants me to do something different, or maybe the Lord wants you to stay exactly where you are. Maybe he wants you to remain long where you are, because the thing is, we, we get this confused in our minds that, that somehow our circumstances are dictating uh, what the Lord is, like the circumstances are, are an indicator of how the Lord is blessing or cursing us. That somehow if, if, if I'm doing my part and the Lord is good, then my life will be going smoothly. Where was that promise in any of Jesus' teaching? Does anyone remember what verse that was? Because I don't, and I looked for it this week because I wanted to be able to say that. I was like, maybe it's in there. I don't know. I'll check, you know, First Thessalonians 19.87. No, it's not in there. Jesus does not promise that. We must remain where we are until the Lord releases us. So if you're somehow thinking that, like, ah, you know, things aren't going really well, you know, maybe I, what maybe I need is a, is a change of job. 
Maybe I need, maybe, maybe we just need like, let's, let's, let's sell the house and we'll, we'll move somewhere else, you know. Maybe, maybe if we just, if, if, I, if I change my diet, you know, uh, things aren't, aren't going really well. I'm going to pick on my wife here, but like, I don't really feel well. There's an essential oil for that, <laughs> right? That, th- that's our culture, right? We, there's a thing that can be, we can solve anything just if we just manipulate something. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God is good. That Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of the Father right now. He's reigning right now. He is in control right now. And all things are being worked for the good of those who love him, even if it doesn't look like it. Even if it doesn't look like it. Especially if it doesn't look like it. They remained long in that place. And the Lord blessed them. He gave them signs and bore witness to the word of his grace. Verse 4 says, But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with the rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country, and they continued there to preach the gospel. So eventually, what we see is that the gospel divides the city. And this shouldn't be, should that be surprising to us? I guess is the real question. Are we surprised that the gospel divided these people. Well, no, Jesus said this himself. He said, Jesus said, I came to make everything better and everyone's going to get along really good. I'm misquoting Jesus a lot today, guys, okay? He said, he said I came to make everything better and everything's just going to be, everyone's going to get along. No. Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword, right? I'm gonna, and I'm going to divide. I'm going to divide father from son, husband from wife. I'm, I'm going to divide you apart. This is going to split you right down the middle, Because what I'm saying leaves no room for a middle ground. You are either in Christ or you are not. And that will divide. And so we could come to expect this. So the people are divided. And there's actually a plot to, to, it looks like, to kill Paul and Barnabas. And and I love this. They're they're wise enough to get out of town. They're like, okay, we've had some converts. We've been here a while. We're We're really overstaying our welcome. We've got other stuff to do. The church here is going. Let's just get out of here. We don't need to die for no reason. right? They're using their wisdom. Uh, growing up, whenever I would try and, like, you know, I don't know, get my grandfather to, to, like, get me something that my mom had said I couldn't have, he would always be like, Michael, I was born at night, but not last night. Because he knew, he knew when I was up to something. And I think the same, th- same thing is true here. And Paul and Barnes would tell us, he's like, be born again, not born yesterday. Right? That, that's kind of the call here. Be born again, not born yesterday. Like, use your wisdom, right? Use your wisdom. Know when to get out of Dodge. Know when to cut your losses. Know when you're trying to uh, shepherd your wife towards a submissive spirit. Uh, when you get to that point where you're about to say, well, the Lord said you're supposed to submit. You, you've overstayed your welcome there, okay? Just back it up a little, right? Like, be born again, not born last night, all right? So they get out of Dodge. Where do they go? They go to their second stop in our journey here. They go to Lystra. So let's read some verses. It says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. Now that's important, right? Because if this guy had, like, had some bad berries two days ago and like, couldn't walk for a couple of days because he was, I don't know, just injured, like that would be one thing. But he had never walked. And he listened to Paul speaking. Now that's important, right? So he was listening to Paul's teaching Okay? He's listening to Paul's teaching, and then this happened. So Paul is preaching Christ to him, and Paul looked intently at this man, the crippled man, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. 
That's pretty cool. And, and notice that this isn't just a miracle that's, that's disassociated from God's word. This guy was hearing Paul preach the gospel, and Paul looked at this guy. I don't know if you've ever been explaining something to a kid or, or a group of people, and you kind of like, you, you like, you'll see, you know, kind of those glazed eyes. Maybe there's that one person who's like, yeah, you, you can see it on their face. I'm imagining that's what Paul is saying, like, this guy's getting it. This guy's got faith. This guy can be healed. And so he heals him. And the guy stands up, he jumps straight up, and he sprang and began walking. And when the crowd saw, so this is where the, there's, there's a turn in the story here, and it just really gets out of hand. You guys already heard me read it once, but you just, like, if you, if you hadn't heard this before, you'd be like, wait, what? Okay, just let, let the surprise happen all over again. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, he was preaching Jesus, healed a guy. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, so this is a separate language, so Paul's probably teaching in Greek. Right? That's probably a common language they have. Maybe Latin, but probably Greek. The language that they would both speak. Now they're speaking in their own dialect, and they say this. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But, and, and then Paul and, and Barnabas kind of start to figure it out here. Okay, so just be surprised with me. Paul and Barnabas, preaching Jesus. Jesus is, Jesus is God. They heal a guy to give credibility to what they're teaching. And then these bozos, the first thing they do is like, it's Zeus and Hermes, let's kill a cow. Does, does that surprise anybody else? Like, it's so disassociated. It doesn't make any sense. But, here's the turn. It actually does make a lot of sense. These guys are idolaters right it's a very very clear form of idolatry right they have like little statues and temples to zeus and hermes and 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 these guys you know they they interpreted this because they have a a predisposition as to what and who god is here in lycaonia all right they follow the 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 greek pantheon of gods so they have a predisposition as to what god is like what he might do they already have stories made up in their own minds they have a picture of god and it has something to do with Zeus and Hermes. And in fact, in Greek mythology, there's actually a story about this city where Zeus and Hermes come down in the form of just regular guys, and they're visiting around, and they look kind of they look kind of shabby, and they're trying to get someone to help them, and no one will help them. And finally, this guy helps them, and they reveal themselves to him, and they bless him, and they give him all this stuff, and then all the other houses get crushed by a flood. So maybe they're just like, just to be safe, in case this is Zeus and Hermes... We're just going to pretend that we notice who they are so they don't crush our houses with water. Okay, but you see what I'm saying? They have idols. They already have a picture of who God is in their mind. And we're no different, right? We already have an idea of who God is outside of the scriptures based on our experiences, based on conventional wisdom, just based on passing knowledge of things, uh, based on past relationships with, with a mom or, or a dad or, or, a, or, or, or someone in your life, you have this image of who God is in your mind. And a lot of times, it's based on that image in your mind whether you accept or reject who Jesus is. And you need to think about that. What are the parts of God's character that you have in your mind that are based on all those factors I just listed and not based on his word? 
Because how do we know and worship God apart from the word that he has revealed to us in Christ and on the pages? We can't. We don't know him. And anything that is not true from these pages needs to be expelled. Because what we do is we develop this system of idolatry where we are either worshiping or rejecting a God based on how I feel, on what I think God should be, or what I think God should do. It's idolatry. Think about as a culture how, how easy, when, when God made the commandment, he said, thou shalt have no idols or graven images of me. That wasn't an accident. He knows our character. He knows our sin nature. Let's go to Romans 1. This will help. I didn't plan this. This, this, will just, this will be helpful. All right, Romans 1. You can flip there or you can just listen, whatever you like. Starting in verse 18. We're going to go to 23. Let me just read this to you. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, us, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, although we knew God, we did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but, they, but we became futile in our thinking, and our foolish hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, we became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Guys, we are so good at idolatry. We are so good at seeing a good thing that God made or a good circumstance that God orchestrated and saying, oh man, I love that thing and totally forgetting about the Lord. When we reach out to the Lord when, when you know, we get sick or when you know, our kid has an exam or something, but like, apart from that, we don't talk with him. It's like if you went into a surgery, right? You had to have some sort of surgery, remove a tumor, um, whatever it is, and, and it goes successfully. You, you wake up from, from the sedation, and the nurse is there with you, and, and he or she says, man, everything went well, you're doing good. And you're like, oh, I just really, I really need to thank the person responsible for this. Could you bring in the scalpel? That's what that's like. That was a slow burn. That's a good one. Thanking the scalpel for a successful surgery. Right, sure, the scalpel helped. But who was holding it? The doctor. It's the same thing that we do with God's good gifts. Is we, we make them our own, and then we make them our idols. That's what we do. That's what we're in the business of doing. The thing is, though, some of you, some of us in this room are saying, well, Michael, I, I'm, not, I'm not an idolater. I don't, I don't care. You know, I don't care about my car or you know, I don't care about money that much. And, you know, I mean, just no more than anybody else. Just humor me. You work a job that you are at best ambivalent about. Maybe you hate it. To make money so that you can buy stuff you don't need to impress people online who you don't know or like. And then you spend so much time working, making that money that you can't even enjoy the things that you have bought. And you do all of this so that you can come here and gather with us for a couple hours a week, a couple times a week, and go back home to your, by any worldly standard, enormous house with your giant TV and complain about the weather. 
you're the idol. The, the idol is me. It's not a thing. It's me. I am about me. I'm about what I want, when I want it, when it should be here. Thanks, Amazon. That's your fault. And I, I am absorbed in myself. I don't care about anything that doesn't have directly to do with me or affect me in any way. So maybe I don't have an idol. Maybe my idol isn't uh, my cell phone. Maybe my idol isn't my car. Maybe it's not money. But it's definitely me. And we live in a culture whose most popular TV show for I don't know how many years running is called American Idol. And we're not good at idolatry. We're experts at it. And that's what happens with these guys. They have, pre- they have preconceived notions about who God is, and they are willing to accept or reject what is being said based on if it fits in their mold. And I'm telling you that that is patently wrong, that God has revealed himself specifically to us in Christ. If you want to see what God looks like, look at Jesus. And he is the only one who can satisfy your heart and save your soul. We are idolaters, and we have to wake up from this sleep that we've been lulled into that because I don't love a thing or, or a place or a person too much that I'm not an idolater. Because you are. There is idolatry in your heart, I promise. And there always will be. And you always have to be rooting it out. But you can't do it on your own. You have to create enough room. You have to push far enough back from the feast that is our culture so that Jesus can get in between you and fill you up. You have to create enough room in your heart and mind that Christ can come in and dwell in you richly, as the scriptures say. To dwell in you richly. We have to create that room and create that space. We have to sweep that house clean and not leave it empty, as Jesus says. Or the same things are going to come back tenfold. No, we sweep it clean and then we invite Christ in. And we let him dwell inside of us in power. And we reject the idols of our culture. We reject the idol of self. And we give ourselves over completely to who Jesus is. And he rules every aspect of our life. Every single aspect. So these guys just are following the the way of the world. These folks that are trying to worship Paul and Barnabas for being Zeus and Hermes. And I want to give you the same exhortation. You'll recognize some similarities in verses 15 and following here. as, As Paul exhorts these guys trying to get them to stop from what we just read in Romans 1. Paul says this. So Paul and Barnabas, they figured out what was going on. They heard of it. They ran out into the middle of the crowd that was about to sacrifice. They they ripped their their clothes, which is a really weird thing. I mean, it's it's weird now. It wasn't weird then. Then it was like a a sign of rejection. Like, I reject what's going on. Like, like, stop this. Like, I hate this. This is just like me just visibly saying, no, right? I'm not going to do that. Just for the record, I don't want to demonstrate it that well. Verse 15 says, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men. So Paul's saying, I'm just a dude. I'm just a dude like you. I'm not a God. And like nature, and of like nature with you. And we bring the good news that you should turn from these vain things, probably pointing to the idols and the bulls and the sacrifices. Turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then Paul says this, and this is the insightful portion that I I want you to hear this, church. In past generations, he, God, allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. And he did so graciously. He let them be disobedient. Their foolish hearts were darkened and he gave them the grace to still go on living. It says, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by you. Not only, Paul is saying, not only did God let you go on being disobedient, but he did good 
by giving you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. But it says, even after these words, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. And that should show you how deeply ingrained this idea of idolatry is in our hearts. That even after an exhortation like that, that Paul is calling them to say, look beyond the things that you're sacrificing to. Look beyond the wood and the stone and the bulls and the temples. And look to the good God who made all things and has given you everything you need to be alive to this very moment. And acknowledge him. And it barely stops them. It barely stops them. Idolatry is rooted in us. It is, it is foundational to who we are as fallen creatures. and We have to be on our guard. It's in your life, I promise. But you have to create some space to see it. Verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Okay, first part of this. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Okay, I want you to, to know this. Those places are, respectively, 70 and 100 miles away. There were no cars. There was no subway. The restaurant or the train. There was no fast means of, of, of transportation. These guys walked 100 slash 70 miles to come and cause trouble for Paul. That is amazing. And I, like, that's commitment. Like, I won't even get up from the couch to stop Silas from dancing in front of the TV. Like, you know, and that's pretty annoying. But, like, that's, that's I'll just be like, I don't know, he'll sit down eventually. I don't know. These guys walked 100 miles to come and cause trouble for Paul. And I don't really want to dwell on that anymore because I want us to just Take that in our own hearts, that these guys were willing to go that far to stop people from believing something. So is the reverse true of us? We, we haven't talked about this yet, and this, this whole context of this chapter is that the, the gospel is going to the Gentiles. This is a mission trip, right? What are these guys going to do? They're going to spread the good news that Christ has been raised from the dead and you can be saved from your sins. So the question is, if these guys will travel 100 miles on foot over several days and spend a lot of money doing it to stop someone from believing that, would we walk across the street to our neighbor and invite them to church, share the gospel with them? Will we talk with the person who sits just over a cubicle wall and share the gospel with them? Does your commitment to sharing the good news of Christ crucified for your sins and resurrected to new life does your commitment to that ideal and your belief in that ideal at least mirror these guys' commitment to walking 100 miles to stop someone from believing it? Because if it doesn't, it makes me in my own heart, if I'm not willing to do that, if I'm not willing to at least match what these unbelievers did, it makes me question how much I actually value the gospel. And so I, wanna, I just want to lay that on top of this whole room for us to sit under, because it's been weighing on me, that I, that I wouldn't be bold enough to just share with someone who I'm already having a conversation with, just share the gospel with them. It takes no effort. But yet, sometimes I don't value the gospel enough. I don't see it as the word of life. And I don't let it dwell richly enough in my heart that it would be flowing from my lips at all times. And that's a shame. But the Lord wants to correct that in me. He wants to correct it in you. So if you're not bold for the gospel, hear these words today. 
that the Lord is here and he is with Paul and Barnabas the same way that he is with every believer. These guys just had the benefit of having it recorded in the scriptures. The same power that lives in Paul and Barnabas and it lives in Christ lives in you as a believer. And you have that same boldness. You have access to that same boldness. Let's keep going. They drag Paul out of the city. Well, they stone him, okay? So that's a big development. So Paul gets stoned, which he's talked... That was, that was a misslip of words there. Paul did not... Paul had stones thrown at him. <laughs> uh, some of you got that. I heard some giggles in the back. Paul had, had a lot of rocks thrown at him until he was unconscious and nearly dead, right? That's not good. And everyone thinks he's dead, and so they drag him outside, probably to where they bury people or where, at least where they threw the trash, and all of his companions rush out after him, and they're like, oh, man, Paul's dead. We should probably go home. Nope. Paul pops right up. When the disciples gathered around, and this is verse 20, he rose and entered the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. He was fine. Now, I don't know if the uh, people from Lystra are just really bad at throwing rocks or really bad at telling if someone's dead, or maybe this was a miracle. I'm betting on the third one there, that he was actually just beaten and bloodied and, and beaten so bad that he looked dead. But the Lord raises him. Whether, whether this is the moment where, you know, when Paul talks about being called up into the third heaven and, and having visions and, and, and seeing the Lord, like maybe this happened while he's there. Like maybe he was dead and the Lord sent him back. I can't prove that. I'm saying this might be an opportunity for that. He wakes back up, goes back into the city. Where does he head? He heads on to the next day. They head to Derby, and it says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And listen to this, verse 22. And saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This coming from the guy who's been chased out of two cities and stoned almost to death in one. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. If you have any misconceptions about who Jesus is, that he is, uh, I listened to a sermon this week that called uh, God the, you've heard genie in a bottle, genie in a Bible, right? You rub this thing, God comes out, grants you a request, you put it back down on the shelf, pick it up next week when you need something. If you think that the Lord is here, to smooth things out for you in this world or in this life. I'm sorry to say, I'm not that sorry, but I'm a little bit sorry to say that that's not true. Those are not promises that Jesus made. The promises that Jesus made were to save you. Jesus didn't come to make you a better person. He didn't come to make your life easier. He came to save you and to sanctify you. That on that day, you can be presented with his church as his bride, spotless and blameless, that is what Jesus came to do. The rest of this stuff is just side stories that don't really matter. The biggest thing that is ever going to happen to you is going to happen on that day. Right? There's nothing going on in this life logistically that on that day when we are face-to-face with the Lord Jesus that is going to even come close to in comparison. Jesus did not come to make your life smooth and easy and good. He came to make your life meaningful and purposeful and to save your soul that you could be redeemed from your sins. That's what Jesus came to do. And that's what Paul is preaching to all these churches. 
says in verse 23, And when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul's establishing these churches as he's traveling back through. So he went through evangelizing, planting churches. On his way back, he comes back through. He establishes, he appoints elders and deacons. Verse 24 Says, and then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, and they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch. So this is just a reverse journey back to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. Literally in the Greek, done to them. All that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. What Paul and Barnabas did and the story they got to tell when they got back, what a great testimony. It's almost up there with the story of John Chapman that I told to to kick this thing off. We hear stories like the story of John Chapman and his, his, his heroic deeds sacrificing himself for his friends, for the guys that he fought with, the guys that he knew and loved. And that's a heroic story. I don't want to detract from that at all. It's, it's an amazing story, and, it, and it, really, it really gets me fired up. Like, man, like, that's what people are capable of. And it, and it should inspire us, right? Because it is, it is objectively an impressive story. But wouldn't, a, wouldn't it be more impressive? Wouldn't it be more awe-inspiring if a God who created all things by the power of his word and sustains all things by the power of his will would create us, let us run amok on his creation, and then, without our request, take on a human form, he would condescend to the level of his creation. He would obey our rules and he would, he would, he would come in and, and he, would, um, he would sit under our mockery and our shame and our disdain, and that he would be killed at the hands of his creation and then on, on a mound of dirt in a city in the middle of nowhere that he created at the beginning of time with his own hands, that he would carry a cross up a hill and die for his creation while we were still in our sin, when we deserved nothing. Wouldn't that be an even more impressive story? Because that's the story of the gospel, and that's the story that Paul's courage bears witness to that there is something greater in life than this life. There is something greater beyond what we are collectively experiencing that we call the American dream or, or whatever it is. That God himself has become man in the form of Jesus, sacrificed himself for his people so that we can turn from our sins and worship him. If you are here today and you've been thinking, you know, I, Life's kind of weird right now. Like maybe I need a change. Maybe I need maybe I need a maybe I need a new place to live. Maybe I need a new job. You know, I don't, my, my marriage is not really good. I wonder. I wonder if we were really supposed to be together. Just just stop. Just stop. That uneasiness is not because of any circumstance. If you are not in Christ, any uneasiness you have in your spirit about anything that's going on in your life has nothing to do with the circumstances themselves, and has everything to do with the fact that God is steering you towards. The irrevocable fact that you are in your sin and you must repent. You must turn to Christ for forgiveness. So forget a change of location or a change of job. Change, have, a, have a change of heart. 
that only the Lord can do. He will work in your life and he will restore you to himself through the blood of Christ if you will repent and put your trust in him. And that is the greatest story ever told. That is a story that gets your blood pumping because that is news that never gets old. I love the story of John. I love tons of stories. I love stories from the Civil War, from World War II. All these great stories of people being heroic. But there's one hero whose story never gets old, and that's Jesus's. Because his news is the best news you will ever hear, that you can be saved from your sin. So I encourage you today, if you have not turned from your sin, if you are not in Christ, if you're not even sure, I want you to take these next few moments. I'm going to invite Corey to come up and, uh, and play some music for us. Just to respond in your heart. Respond in your heart to that call to the gospel to repent of sin and trust in Christ for salvation. I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to stand and we're going to sing. If you have any questions about the gospel, I'll either be up here or I'll be back there. Um, there are plenty of great folks in here that you can talk to um, about how to follow Jesus. I pray that this word of truth, that this word that we've heard today from Acts 14 is encouraging to you, but also challenging. Challenging that you would root out idols in your life. Because I've, I've studied this week, I've found so many I can't count. And the biggest one is me. The biggest one is me. I am my idol. So reject those things, push away from the table, and create room for Christ to come in and dwell richly in your heart. Let's pray together.